Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. The Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully-fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. The podcast starts now. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald and we're recording on Wednesday the 28th of February. Uh, also here on the podcast, Andy McKeever, former Director of Communications to the Scottish Conservatives. Hello Andy. Good morning Callum. Good morning. Great to see you. Uh, you've got a lot of heavy lifting to do today. Jeff is off the pod today. He's got some other commitments elsewhere, uh, which is all good. Uh, so, Andy, it's it's kind of all you. You've got to well, do both sides of this thing. My shoulders are weighed down by <laughs> carrying Jeff on this podcast for the last year anyway. So we won't tell him, but it's going to be a lot easier without him today right. anyway, let's well, be honest. We, no, what, the official message is we miss Jeff a lot. Yeah, sorry, that is, so I forgot the official message. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. You're, you're a comms <laughs> professional, Andy. We agreed uh-huh. this. Uh, and actually, it's <laughs> worth noting that it is basically exactly a year now since we launched the podcast. I'm actually, just as I speak, looking back at when our first episodes were. And goodness me, we've covered an awful lot since the first yep. episodes. Um, we have. I remember been... when the call came in, Callum, I was uh, walking along... Morningside in uh, Ian Murray's constituency and my phone rang with Callum McDonald on the phone and I thought I usually only speak to Callum McDonald on the Times Radio early morning breakfast show at <laughs> five in the morning so yeah. this is unusual uh, and you called me and said hey let's do a podcast who yeah. should we get to join us and I said we should get Jeff Aberdeen he's pretty good and what two days later I think we recorded our first podcast. Yeah but, uh, so I'm looking back so the trailer went out the 23rd of February last year and the first episode was the 24th so yeah it was all pretty quick turnaround because of course that was when Nicola Sturgeon had announced she yep. was resigning. So here we are uh, a year on which is great. Now there's lots to discuss this week on the podcast um, we're going to consider Lee Anderson in a moment who's been dominating headlines uh, one way or the other over the last week. I think we might mention the budget as well the Scottish government's budget uh, which has passed but has been a you know kind of focal point as you might imagine on the this uh, podcast too. And we're going to do lots of this discussion in the company of Ian Anderson, founder and executive chairman of Cicero, the lobbying group. Ian, hello. It's good to be with you. I hope I haven't scared my fellow Aberdonian Jeff Aberdeen off because I'm on. (laughs) 
<laughs> he was intimidated by your presence, Ian, and understandably so. You know, too it's many great. lobbyists on one call. That's what it is. <laughs> All good things come in threes, except lobbyists. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you there, Ian. Thank you very much for for joining the podcast. I actually, I think, just by way of um, context for our listeners, uh, Ian, you've been, you know, you've been a real fixture in sort of public life and public policy for a long time, and I think it's helpful to hear a bit of your CV, if I can put it like that, because historically you've done so much stuff over the years. So catch us up, bring listeners up to date. What is your CV? So I study in Aberdeen and then in St Andrews, um, go off to work for the esteemed Dundee Courier, where I write a piece, Callum, uh, about Malcolm Rifkind, I remember, and I get a call from one of the Thompson family to say, oh, there's a word that you've used that we're not going to have in a good Presbyterian newspaper. That was the word Mecca. So, well, <laughs> look, look, hey, the culture wars were alive and well 30, 40 years ago. Went off, went to work with, uh, among other people, Ken Clark, tried to get him elected as leader of the Tory party on three occasions, but the Tory party was just not willing to elect Ken Clark. And maybe it explains a lot about where we are today. Um, and then, yes, um, launched Cicero at the start of the noughties. And we help people with the intersection of policy, regulation and um, and business, which is why I get a bit obsessed and a bit geeky about some of those themes. Yeah, which is good. It's exactly why we've got you on the podcast. We like geeky insight into what's going on. Um, Ian, it is great to have you. Uh, as I say, lots to get into. Andy, where do you want to start? Should we start with Lee Anderson, for better or worse? Because he has been dominating the headlines this week. And I suppose, actually, the kind of latest this morning is that um, the Home Office has announced millions of pounds to actually improve the security of MPs. And I, I guess it kind of stops you in your tracks, actually, a bit when you read a headline like that and you kind of read into why why the Home Office feels they're having to do this. It all builds on last week's chaotic House of Commons vote on a ceasefire that was a, an opposition day motion from the SNP that, uh, as our uh, nerdy listeners will know, descended into absolute chaos. But Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, cited the security of parliamentarians as his reason for kind of going against protocol and procedure and, and changing what would normally happen on a day like last Wednesday. And since then, everything's kind of descended into ultimate chaos, Andy. And I'm just trying to work out where we are a week off. Well, I, I, probably not much further on in terms of the substance of the arguments. I was actually, I mentioned Ian Murray just a few minutes ago in jest, but a far more serious issue with Ian Murray. If you remember, Calamine was on the podcast mm. a few months ago and he told us that he had resisted security security uh, after Sir David Amos was killed, resisted security all the times he'd been asked to take security. But he has been effectively forced into security as a result of the Israel-Gaza situation um, because he supported Keir Starmer's line as it was before the end of last year um, on the ceasefire. So I don't think we should minimise the seriousness of the issue and the substance of the issue. The problem is that Lee Anderson, who I'm not particularly sorry to say I've never met, but um, this is a serious and substantial issue, but Lee Anderson is an unserious and insubstantial person um, and therefore is the wrong person to be the focus of what is an important debate. There's probably two things that spring to mind on it, which uh, I think you find difficult to see from the type of debate that we're having, not just in the Tory party, but also in the Labour party over the anti-Semitism issue. One is that foolish, loose uh, comments tend to dominate uh, as opposed to the substance. And that means that you don't actually get to have a proper debate about what is going on and the issues that have been highlighted. Because... um, 
insubstantial people sometimes do raise substantial issues. They just don't do it in the right way and it means that we find it difficult to talk about. And I think the other thing, which is far more difficult for elected politicians in particular to talk about, is that we should be careful to distinguish between racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and ignorance. They're not the same thing. Um, And even accusations are not the same thing. So um, when we try to label everybody as anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or racist or whatever we want to label them as, if we bring too many people into that bracket because it suits our narrative, we actually minimise the focus on the people who genuinely are those things. And I worry about that a little bit. I know that Lee Anderson is not the sort of person that I would want to associate myself with. I know that he uh, he certainly presents himself as a man who is ignorant of the issues and is not particularly helpful to politics in general. I don't know if the guy is Islamophobic. I don't know if the guy is racist. I don't want to bracket him with people who clearly are those things. And I would say the same about a Labour politician on the basis of anti-Semitism. So that's the only bit of nuance I would try to put into it is Let's call a spade a spade when it is a spade, but but there are differences here between ignorance and racism. Interesting. And that's an interesting distinction to make. As a reminder, Lee Anderson then has had the Tory whip suspended. Uh, this was following comments he made on GB News uh, last week uh, on Friday. He said, I don't actually believe that the Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan, as in Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Starmer as well. Uh, so these are the comments that have led to his suspension from the Tory party. And Andy, just to keep it with you for one more, the, the, what, what do you make of the Conservative Party response to this? So yes, the suspension of the whip, but also the comms strategy around this, which has actually dominated the news agenda. We often talk about the media round, don't we? Which is when a government minister appears on several media outlets on any given morning to speak to the issues of the day. And this has dominated all week this week because the government line is to say what Lee Anderson said was wrong, and to not go any further than yeah. that, whereas they're being pushed to say, well, was it Islamophobic? Was well, it racist? And, and perhaps that feeds into what you were yes, saying. Yes, indeed. And uh, But the Tory party have made their own bed here. They are, you know, they're shipping votes to Labour on one side and they're shipping votes to Reform on the other side. So they have taken a decision that they want to put their attack dog out and his name is Lee Anderson. And they want to give him a position of authority in the party so that he can talk to voters who think that way and get them on side. And I'm afraid if you make your bed, then you have to lie in it. If you want to put a moron in a position of power and he then says moronic things that's your fault ian let's bring you in on this because i I know you'll have some thoughts on on all that's unfolded over the last few days right so the first thing to say is he's not a relative of mine um despite (laughs) the fact we share the same uh surname so i just want to make that very clear the second thing i want to say is that i stepped away from being a conservative in February last year, almost exactly a year ago, after almost 40 years of membership of the Conservative Party, because I, given what I do, got a sense that the Conservatives were planning to run a culture war into this election, for all the reasons that um, Andy has just pointed to, supposedly the polling takes them there. It's a deeply irresponsible thing uh, to do. Um, And as someone who um, still wears uh, suede shoes um, uh, and still agrees with Ken Clark that the Tories are wrong about Rwanda, 
are wrong about not having a relationship with our single biggest, deepest uh, economic partner and are absolutely wrong not to call this out for what this is. It's clear to me, Callum, that the one nation strand that's uh, been in the Conservative Party for as long as I was a member of the Conservative Party is entirely enfeebled. And, and if I look back, maybe I should have done what I did uh, much earlier because the right, like crocodiles, have continued to eat and eat and eat and eat at the direction of the Conservative Party um, to the extent where uh, right now, um, you know, there's not a lot to be seen in terms of not even a rearguard action. It's not even a whimper. Um, coming from one nationism, and they're going to pay a heavy price for that, I think, when we eventually get to this general election, at a time when people are worried about food on the table, they're worried about the um, global geopolitical situation, and indeed what that does to putting food uh, on the, the table, there's nothing in this about bringing the country together. And I just cannot understand uh, why a prime minister of any hue would not call this out for what it is. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to get to hear that, Ian. And I mean, 40 years of Conservative membership is a big deal. And, you know, it was it created waves at the time when you said it. as somebody who has been at the kind of forefront of these sorts of discussions, as we say, for for such a long time and with such insight and expertise as well. What is happening here then? Because someone like Lee Anderson, and I might just mention Suella Braverman at this point as well, who wrote an article in The Telegraph at the weekend, um, uh, speaking about the threat of Islamists um, and, and sort of Islamists running the country and, and that sort of concern that she was expressing. Are, they, are people like Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson, are they boldly trying to change the direction of the Conservative Party in the interests of an evolving electorate who agree with what they're saying? Or are they radical in what they are saying insofar as they are not speaking for a, a large enough group of the, of, a, of, of the population to carry this much influence in the Conservative Party? They are radicals. Uh, absolutely, they are radicals. You know, we've heard that as well um, in other places um, over uh, the, the last week where, um, you know, former Conservative Prime Ministers have lent in to um, some pretty extreme uh, ideas and somehow don't seem to want to comment on why they lent into uh, to, to those ideas. There is nothing for me philosophically, Callum, and sorry, that sounds a bit grandiose, <laughs> practically, yeah. there is nothing conservative about this. In fact, conservatism was supposed to be about just that, about working with the grain of our institutions, not trashing our institutions, about you know, back to the time of Disraeli, bringing the country together. I mean, it's no surprise that in Scotland, what was it, 1955, that the Conservative Party was at its apotheosis just at the time when it was led by the most, what, probably the one, uh, the biggest one nation leader in the modern era. Um, that all appears to be being binned. I mean, let me give you a, um, 
sort of point in the sand. On the times I was trying to get Ken Crocker um, elected to an unwilling Conservative Party, you know, 97, uh, that was only the parliamentary party, and then William Hague, when he won, changed the rules. Mm. 2001, it was 60-40 in front of that amazing election winner, in favour of that amazing election winner, Ian Duncan Smith. Um, Well, look how long he lasted. And then when we tried Ken again in 2005, um, you know, it was pretty, well, I mean, um, Cameron did his his magic trick and made a speech without notes, and that sort of got the party enthralled. But the sort of move of where the party's been going has been taking place for years, and this is the end result. That is fascinating. And I should say, actually, at this point, that this Friday, this coming Friday, Hollywood Sources, the podcast, will be recording at Scottish Conservative Party Conference. And I just wonder how much the kind of actions of uh, the party at large, Andy, will be dominating Conservative Party Conference this weekend. Um, you know, uh, you know better than most the relationship between the Scottish Party and the rest of the Conservative Party. Is this the sort of thing that has a, there's a real danger of overshadowing Scottish Conservative Party Conference where we'll be this weekend? I don't think it'll overshadow it in terms of the membership. Uh, I think the media will be interested in people's response to it. Certainly. Uh, yeah. And uh, also in the response of the elected members from the Scottish party uh, of this. I mean, I think it's important to understand how the key issues that are being pursued by the Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman type crowd in the Conservative Party at Westminster, namely immigration, is very far away from the priorities of the Scottish Conservative Party and the people in Scotland. I mean, it's it's like a different world, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, and every time the UK Conservative Party majors on that, it chips away in Scotland. It does damage in Scotland all the time because, you know, far from trying to keep people away, Scotland is a massive massive demographic issue. We need people up here. So, you know, down in the southeast of England, they might want rid of them. Up in the northwest of Scotland, we need them to build houses, right? We yeah, don't yeah. want rid of them. So, um, you know, the, the priorities are massively juxtaposed. Um, but a Scottish Conservative Party conference is, is, I don't want to be too hard on party conferences, Callum, because I've been nasty about political party <laughs> members over yeah. the last few weeks. And it's a te- it was terrible of me to, to do that. So I won't major on that too much. But um, the, the members of the Scottish Conservative Party, historically and still today, they look to London for leadership, not Edinburgh. They go to Aberdeen this weekend, uh, I'm afraid, not excited about seeing Douglas Ross. They go to Aberdeen excited about seeing Rishi Sunak for an hour. That That's how Conservative Party Conference in Scotland works. It's very much a Westminster orientated do. Uh, and the main event of this party conference is Rishi Sunak. Uh, and I've, I've got a, a piece going into The Spectator um, later on today uh, about this. Um, and, you know, the reality is that in Scotland the Tories are in pretty good fettle because they're going to hold on to all their seats because their seats are uh, against the SNP. They're all head-to-head SNP seats. And because the SNP vote has slid so much, despite the fact the Tory vote share has also slid, they're going to hold on to these seats and they're going to have, on the face of it, a pretty good election. Underlying it, it's not a good election at all. Uh, But on the face of it, they're going to have a decent election. The SNP are going to have a bad election. And I think the important thing to remember is that when you are a member of the Scottish Tory party, you are motivated uniquely in the world. You are motivated Mm. not by getting into government. This is not the aim of the 
the opposition in Scotland. The aim of the opposition in Scotland is to stop the SNP. It is not to get into government. Um, and that uh, that is, at the moment, quite a successful enterprise. The Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully-fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. Ian, I want to consider with you how you view that relationship between Scottish politics and UK politics, if I can put it like that, between Edinburgh and London. You know, you you kind of work across the UK and, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be hosting a special podcast, 25 Years of Devolution, uh, which we're really looking forward to kind of assessing what's happened over the last 25 years, what needs to happen next. From your point of view as an advisor, as somebody who's in the mix of all of this, as a lobbyist working with businesses, First of all, how is that relationship functioning or not right now? And second of all, is that a fault of devolution or a, you know something that just needs to be uh, worked out from a party political standpoint, I suppose? Well, look, I'm hugely uh, sorry. I'm going to miss that uh, big yeah. podcast. I just can't make the date, but I'm going to be listening out and Thank uh, you. really keen. I mean, it looks like a tremendous uh, cast uh, of folks who've seen devolution from the start and before uh, the start. Look, what might um, Andy and I agree on, the Tories did not want the Scottish Parliament um, and spent the first two or three years trying to navigate the fact they'd had a message saying, we don't want a Scottish Parliament. It's another layer. How often did the Scottish electorate hear? It's another layer and it's going to tax you more. Um, they got a bit more relaxed about it, I think, over time. And then probably um, the, um, uh, you know, apotheosis of the Tory party being in Scotland most relaxed about the, the settlement came under Ruth Davidson's um, uh, tenure. And she was able to not just touch the um, the unionist part of the conversation, but she was actually um able to, I think, touch as almost as well as the former first minister, the zeitgeist of uh, modern Scotland. Where are we now? I think the most effective, um, and I think it's the part of the reason why he's he's really cutting through, the most effective positioning in Scottish politics right now comes from Anas Sarwar, which is... Um, you know, at this election, uh, don't cast a protest vote, send a government uh, to Westminster, right? And 
his secondary line, which is, you might not agree with me on the question of independence. He's obviously not in favour um, of independence, neither am I. But the idea that you can have in uh, by the end of 2024 a Labour government in Westminster and potentially by 2026 a um, Labour government, a Scottish Labour government uh, in Holyrood working together to, to uh, bring in inward investment, to some, bring some economic sun uh, to uh, the, the country. So we're, we're about to move. If Labour win nationally and on the back of the first year of how a Labour government performs at Westminster, you know, that's very, very important, obviously, for Scottish Labour. Um, it has to start delivering. Um, it has to start doing these missions. That was the big failure of the Johnson administration. Um, it never got a chance to do any of this levelling up stuff. COVID, yes, but also, frankly, the chaos of the kingly court and the way in which the, the dysfunction of that administration. If they can get lift off, we will move. We absolutely, I think, will move into a new phase of devolution where you don't have two governments at each other's throats. You don't have uh, two governments at, in a place that are looking for a rammy, as somebody once put it yes, lately. Um, and actually, you've got the potential for two governments working uh, together. That's a new phase for the devolution settlement if it's um, if it's ahead of us. Yeah, and there's a lot a lot of really interesting points in there to pick up on. Let me let me pick up on one of them. Um, Ruth Davidson was a really transformation transformational leader for the Tory Party in Scotland. Um, as you'll know, I actually I ran the campaign of her opposite number, Murdo Fraser, to uh, abolish mm. Tory Party and start. Uh, a new one, which I think we will see over the next few years, is is as valid a concept as it was then. Um, but Ruth herself was a brilliant leader, and she the the votes that she got were largely votes on the back of the independence referendum. They were largely votes of unionists who uh, wanted to protect the union and stop NDRF too. They weren't conservative votes, but Ruth Davidson certainly helped them get them over the line because of who she was. And I think Ruth Davidson will remain a really interesting case study for many, many years to come in Scottish politics, because she topped out at 25, 26, 27 percent of the vote. But the ceiling of that vote was not one created by Ruth Davidson. It was one created by the fact that the word Conservative came after Ruth Davidson's name. Ruth Davidson could have been First Minister of Scotland. There was a clear pathway to somebody like Ruth Davidson with her centrist, economically and socially liberal views. She was the... One nation. Absolutely. One nation absolutely, Ian. She was the leader of all the leaders at that point in Scotland who was probably most similar to normal people in the country. And if she had been in charge of a different party, she could have been First Minister. But she can't be First Minister in charge of the Scottish Tory party. And that, I'm afraid, is the key problem. I spoke to 30 small business owners yesterday morning. Um, I do talks, as you know, uh, round Edinburgh a lot to business owners about the state of the nation, effectively. So 30 small business owners all worried about the economy. It was the economy, 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 worried about tax. Do you know the one word that nobody mentioned throughout the entire two hours I was with them? Conservative. Nobody asked me about right. the Tories. Nobody, not one. They asked me about Kate Forbes. They asked me about Anas Sarwar. They asked me about Rachel Reeves. Nobody asked me about the Scottish Tory party. A business audience. An audience of centre-right entrepreneurs and business owners. Not 
interested in the party of the centre-right. They have to ask themselves, why not? Well, there's two words, Andy, really simply. Sorry, this is a book plug now, everyone. Uh, but I wrote a book called F Business not long after uh, Johnson uttered the words he did. Because I wanted to explore why could a centre-right figure that would should should attract the kind of audience that you're talking about, Andy, say F business and the Conservative Party, north and south of the border, didn't appear to blink. It didn't call him out. In fact, he said that when he wasn't even prime minister. And then they went on to elect him as prime minister, as Conservative Party leader. So in a way, we've also had a culture war against a natural conservative constituency here, business owners. And actually this evening, I'm going to be uh, talking to an event with the SME sector and labor supporters in the SME sector. So that the idea that the Conservative Party would just kind of naturally sort of weigh the SME vote because it was naturally blue and entrepreneurial and free market and all that, that's all gone. And it's all gone because of so many things that the Conservative Party have done to push business away. Um, perhaps that uh, brings us round to uh, the report that you wrote, well, it was published about a month ago, Ian. A new partnership, a long-term plan for government business relations to power our economy and society. Um, just in the sort of intro to this, you note, too often businesses tell me the government only listens when it wants something or something has gone wrong. That will never be the recipe for an enduring partnership. And I suppose, I mean, you can tell us more, but it's about kind of evaluating how businesses are viewed and treated by government right now and crucially what needs to change. Um, and worth noting, I mean, this is published on labour.org.uk. This was a report for the, for the Labour Party. Are they now the party of business? Well, certainly given the events of the last few years, um, I've just been saying, uh, Callum, um, you know, business leaders are in a place where they are sick of constantly changing policies. They are absolutely tired of constantly changing people implementing those policies. I mean, what is it? We've had nine business secretaries and seven chancellors in a whipsaw 13, 14 years. Now, that is not a way to develop a relationship with business. And it's certainly not a way to develop a relationship business if you are... Um, clearly not interested in what business thinks. I mean, the problem has been for that former party of business, the Conservative Party, that they've, they have completely flip-flopped on the relationship. It was actually under the coalition, under Cameron and Clegg, they did want to have an, um, um, a, a relationship uh, with business. But lately, it's all got completely mashed up. So yes, I mean, people in the business community are listening to Labour. Of course, they're listening to Labour with opinion polls um, as they currently are because um, they're likely uh, to form um, uh, the next government. And if Labour, and this is what I was trying to sort of uh, point to in my report, if Labour can set out a trajectory which gives um, uh, uh, businesses a, a long-term approach to policy, then you can plan your business around. You might not like the policies. You know, you, you know, you, you've been debating lots of those policies. I know on the podcast uh, lately, you may not like those policies. I mean, 
anybody in business though will say to me, and I say as a as somebody who grew an SME into an international business myself, um, you might not like the policy um, in whole, you might like the policy in part, but stop changing the policies and be more welcoming. My goodness me, um, this country um, needs inward investment uh, right now. It needs to put a massive flag up that says we want investment uh, to come to our country, because the link to that is not just to that first of Labour's missions, i.e. the highest growth rate in the G7, which is a very, very punchy mission. But you're only going to do that if people think that they can invest in the UK. And and um, that's really what I tried to point to, um, looking at countries like France right now, looking at countries like Ireland right now, they're getting more of this right than we are. And um, I think there's a big job to do for a, both a new government at Westminster, but also a potential new government at Holyrood um, to put that big flag up. That's, a, that's an interesting point. Like, actually, I, was, I, um, I had a thing this morning, uh, which included Mary Spowage from Fraser Allender and Kevin Havelock from uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. And it was interesting because they were talking again about the Scottish government's budget, um, and Ian's there saying about, you know, putting a flag up saying we want investment. The the point they were making again, as as Mary from Fraser Lander has made before, is that the differential tax rates that the Scottish government are uh, expanding all the time, increasing all the time. Um, Fraser Lander has already outlined that the the behavioural change from people inside Scotland is so significant that there's actually almost no point in raising those tax rates at all. But the thing that came up today and I think is critically important is just what Ian was saying there about the flag that you wave because the big risk is not actually behavioural change from people who are already here. It's behavioural change from people who won't come because they think this is a hostile place to do business, uh, a hostile place to live. They won't come because they don't want to live here with higher taxes and poorer public services, but also companies won't invest because they don't, they don't see that flag that Ian's talking about being waved by Scotland and they won't come here as a result. And then you get to looking at, say, Anna Sarwar's conference speech in Glasgow two weeks ago, where at a Scottish Labour conference where they are used to socialist red meat being thrown at them, and Asarwar says he's, un and I quote, unashamedly pro-business, unashamedly pro-growth. A Scottish Labour leader to a Scottish Labour audience. I mean, you know, we know where the gap is in Scottish politics, right? It's right there. Huh? And this is the realism. And back to your original question, Callum, I wouldn't have been doing this as if Jeremy Corbyn had been leading the Labour Party. Well, I probably wouldn't have been asked to do it if... <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn was leading uh, the Labour Party. But, you know, I, I met Keir about a year ago. I've met Anas more recently. And as Andy says, you know, you wouldn't have got the level of enthusiasm for business under the previous ownership. Yeah. And, and they are trying to put a big flag up to say, um, come at and invest. They need to put that uh, flag up to say, um, come and invest. Because, um, quite simply, if you get the conditions right, the private sector will invest. I, somebody did say to me, um, and in the context of a Holyrood conversation, as the prospect, this is a major international investor, a US investor, said to me in the last six months, keep an eye for me, Ian, on what the prospect looks like of Indiref 2. And as that prospect has been dropping, they, and these are very serious Wall Street types, 
in Scotland is becoming more investable. Now, they're still waiting, guys, they're still waiting to see how the UK votes in this general election. And for Scotland in particular, they're obviously going to wait and see how Scotland votes uh, in 2026. But with the prospect of Indyref 2 diminishing, people are telling me the country's becoming more investable. That is really, really interesting, isn't it? And I, I just wonder, you know, we, as you know, Ian, we, we talked uh, recently uh, a lot about energy, uh, primarily because about a month ago, in fact, we held our energy special in Aberdeen. Uh, 300 people who knew what they were talking about in the room. We had three politicians on stage to answer their questions and sort of dig in on uh, where their policy uh, future might be for energy and the transition. And it is a favourite topic on this podcast. And I, I don't think we should make any apology for that. It's really important. It's a big deal for tens of thousands of jobs for the economy, for these companies, etc. And one of the things that we were discussing was around investment and which party offered um, certainty, something else you've talk- talked about already on the podcast. I'm not sure the 300 people in the room and our listeners, you know, stopped listening, <laughs> feeling particularly satisfied with either of those things, certainty, uh, or the, the idea of investing now in the kind of northeast of Scotland. One thing that Sarah Boyack, who was there for the Scottish Labour as their energy spokesperson, one thing she was talking about was GB Energy. Um, and we tried to drill into exactly what that would mean, what that would entail. And Jeff, credit to him, uh, tried to get her to pin her colours to the mast and say that GB Energy would be headquartered in Aberdeen. She wouldn't be drawn on that, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly. But but it does sort of, it feeds that feeling of, right, but but we still don't know, we still don't right. have the certainty from you on, on what should be done here. Right, well, look, um, I am not a... Uh, Labour Party spokesman. I'm not a member of the Labour Party, but I'm backing Labour for the next election. I'm also um, a professional Aberdonian, right? Uh, <laughs> born and raised and that right. So the answer to me is really, really simple. Uh, for Keir, for Ed, for Anas, locate GB Energy in Aberdeen. Uh, you've got the agglomeration effect, you've got the uh, skills, you've got the hub effect, you've got the transition um, between commerce and academia and inward investors. Send that signal. That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just thinking, I'm pretty sure we pressed pressed Sarah Boyack on, you know, where else is making anywhere close to a good pitch? If it's not Aberdeen, where is it? Uh, and she wouldn't be drawn on that either. But, you know, we've got to try these things. We try these things and see where we get to. Uh, <laughs> I'm just quite struck as well, by way of conclusion, this, this is a really interesting kind of uh, experience you've had over the years. And, and notably over the last year, this kind of, you know, straying away from the Tory party after 40 years of support, uh, as you've just said, supporting Labour for this this next election. What about then what Andy says um, when it comes to a, a Scottish party of the centre-right and and specifically a new party in Scotland of the centre-right? I mean, Andy's been yelling about this for years uh, and, he's got an, and he's got a new outlet for it on this podcast. Do you think that is, that is a sensible direction? This goes now, given where we started this conversation, you know, Andy, you and I have had this conversation about a separate story party when I was a conservative. Um, I don't want to intrude now, Callum, on private grief, really, uh, now that after 40 years, I've decided that um, 
you know, it's just not for me mm. um, anymore because of all the reasons that, that we've discussed. This isn't just a Scotland Tory problem anymore. This is a UK-wide Tory problem now. They are going down a sinkhole. Uh, they are going down a sinkhole with this stuff. Uh, and um, I hope for the good of democracy and the good of giving people a genuine choice and the good of, in Scotland, giving people a pro-business, pro-stability, pro-fiscal certainty, um, uh, pro-enterprise um, party again, the whole thing needs to go and reinvent uh, because this is not working. It will work for just enough, um, as you were talking, Andy, for the Tory party to um, say, you know, hung on to what it had in Scotland. But that will mean as nothing in terms of what happens across uh, the UK. I think the Tory party needs to go and completely reinvent itself. You know, I've had hurled at me, not from friends, because your friends remain your friends. Mm. But I've from, I've had hurled um, at me from the uh, the morning star that I am a neoliberal, and from the centre right that I'm a woke warrior. Go figure how you can be a neoliberal woke warrior. That is the contortion. I sleep very well at night, everybody. Um, uh, I sleep very well at night. That is the contortion that the Conservative Party's got into down south. Um, and I think it's it's exactly why um, there's an identity crisis um, in a world that sees the prospect of IndyRef2 going down and where, we, where the Conservatives were a decade ago in Scotland. It's got an identity crisis as to what it needs to do next in Scotland. And that's why it needs to go and reinvent and why we need a new government. There we are. Andy, what do you make of that? Well, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting to... My focus has largely been for many years on the fact that Scotland is unique in having a centre-right party which can't ever be in government because no, that's not the case anywhere else in Europe. And I always start from the point of saying if you want to be in politics, you want to try to be in government because that's the point. Uh, and the Scottish Tory party is the only party in the Scottish Parliament that has never been in government and has no prospect of getting there. So that's the point I start from. But it is interesting what Ian says about whether actually it becomes part of a broader reinvention, possibly of a looser Conservative Party, um, in the way that you would have in other countries, like in Canada, for instance, where uh, you know there are loose regional and national associations, but perhaps the centralism uh, of the party changes, and and maybe you know post general election that might be a good time to do it because it could be both mathematically and more importantly intellectually decimated at that point. This is what we love to do on this podcast. Ian, thank you for being such a brilliant insight and being such an expert and bringing some big thoughts to the Hollywood Sources podcast. We really appreciate it. It's just been great. I'd love to come and natural again. Please do. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Andy, thank you very much as well. Um, is there anything else you want to plug? You've got your Spectator column in there at the fact you're available to speak to businesses in Edinburgh. Yeah, I think When's the Herald, uh, Herald column, column Herald column's Friday. Every Friday in the Herald, uh, online Friday, or uh, in the comment Good. pages, we can plug that. Yeah. Have you plugged yeah. the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary podcast? I'm pretty sure you have seven or eight times. A little bit. I'll do that yeah. again now as well. The guest list is ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely it is ridiculous. ridiculous. And it's not finished yet either. 
No. So a few more guests to announce later in the week. 21st of March, Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh. Uh, it is the devolution event of the 25th yeah. anniversary. There's no need for any other ones. The, the podcast may have started no, earlier, but the plugging stops now. And go and buy Ian's book, I think is the other thing as well. Yes, it's still available from all good outlets. <laughs> uh, excellent. Uh, Ian and Andy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, yeah, your tickets are available for 25 years of devolution, featuring uh, Alex Salmond, Henry McLeish, Jack McConnell, Kate Forbes, Brian Taylor, Bernard Ponsonby, Lorraine Davidson, who was an advisor to Donald Dewar, Susan Deacon, who was elected in 1999, Jim Wallace... Uh, who went into the first ever government uh, as a coalition. Uh, he was the Liberal Democrat leader at the time in 1999 as well. Goodness me, it's an embarrassment of riches. Your tickets are available at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. And we will see you in Edinburgh for that. And we'll talk to you again. Well, in fact, over the weekend from Conservative Party Conference. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and you won't miss an episode. Speak to you soon. Hold up. 